Well, good morning. Uh, it's such a joy to be here. Let me begin with prayer. And I first want to say on behalf of the uh, pastors of Emmanuel Baptist Church, where I serve as lay pastor, I bring uh, greetings and I'm delighted with the opportunity to open God's word to you. And I pray that it would be um, would serve you and would serve me. So let's pray. Father, you are very great and very glorious. When we think about right now, you're sustaining the moon in orbit around this earth. You're feeding the sun with fuel to burn. There's countless galaxies beyond number. There's galaxies beyond the galaxies that we've even been able to see. You are very immense and glorious and wonderful. And we have the privilege to open your word and to hear from you. And I pray, God, that you would magnify your son, Jesus Christ. You would exalt Jesus and that we would be left with a sense of awe of his majesty, of his character, and of who he is. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be considering this morning uh, the book of, from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. So if you open Daniel's, uh, it's in the Old Testament. So you've got prophet Jeremiah, then Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel's right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 3. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. Uh, but the tr story is truly about what God did in the midst of them being in exile. Um, we're not at home in the world. Christians are not at home in the world. Peter, when he's writing to different churches of his day, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles. To be in exile is to be removed from your homeland. And if you were in exile, removed from your homeland, there would be a deep longing in your heart to go back to that place. And the Bible says that's what Christians have for, the, for, the, for heaven. Or as John Bunyan put it in the Pilgrim's Progress, the celestial city. That place for the Christian that there's finally rest. There is an eternity of bliss with God. Uh, and sometimes in our lives we forget we're on a pilgrimage. We forget our lives are moving toward a singular destination in a singular place. But rather we get perhaps too comfortable here in this world. Uh, we begin to just focus too much on this home and we forget of our homeland to which we're headed. Um, so we're similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 in that way. They were exiled. They weren't in their homeland. They were removed from their homeland. You remember uh, God delivered a people out of Egypt through ten plagues, and he brought them out into a promised land. But the God's, God's people, after being delivered from Egypt, moved into the promised land, but because of their sin, they had to be exiled out of the promised land. And that God's people went into exile in the place of Babylon. So similar to how Adam and Eve were in the paradise of God in the Garden of Eden, 
yet because of their sin, they were removed from that place. In the same way, God's people here had been in a land flowing with milk and honey, a land God had given to them, and because of their sin, they were removed and in exile. And that's where we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in our text. So if this is true, if we are exiles, if you're a Christian here, you're in exile longing for a homeland, how should you live? How then should you live? That's what the sermon's about. Being that Christians are exiles, how should they live? And I'm going to read the text, and the three things that we're going to focus on this morning is that as sojourners and strangers, you should take comfort that God humbles the proud. You should take comfort that God humbles the proud. Secondly, as sojourners and strangers, you should be bold in faith knowing your God. Your faith should make you bold. Thirdly, as sojourners and strangers in a foreign land, entrust your soul to God, for he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So let's, uh, let's read the text together. Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providences gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. 
So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've set up, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said, and they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their, hair, their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb for limb, their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence 
of Babylon. As strangers and exiles, you should take comfort that God humbles the proud. You should take comfort in your life that God humbles the proud. Who was King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he was a uh, he ruled in the sixth century. There were many vast kingdoms that were laid in his wake. One of the ancient wonders of the world is his hanging gardens of Babylon, where he would walk out on his rooftop, and he had these beautiful gardens. Um, he was more than just he had more than just military dominance. He believed in something of a Babylonian exceptionalism. He thought that Babylon was the greatest nation ever, and he wanted to spread it across the face of the whole earth. Those that he conquered, he considered inferior to himself. For instance, when he destroyed Jerusalem, he brought all of the utensils from the temple into his house, saying, I'm, uh, the Israelites lost because my gods are mightier than their gods. But as you know and as I know, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So how was he proud? A couple ways that I'd like to point out from the text that he was proud. In chapter 2 of Daniel, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And it's a dream of uh, a figure of probably a person where the head was gold, the shoulders were a different um, type of metal, the, basically, the image was of all different sorts of uh, materials that this image was made of. And God told Nebuchadnezzar that these are going to be successive kingdoms that come after you. You're the golden head, and after you are going to come these kingdoms. They're going to be of lesser power than you. But in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of all gold. What is he saying? He's saying, my kingdom isn't going to go anywhere. He's too proud to think that his kingdom will ever be like all the other kingdoms that we know in this world. Uh, so that's the first way he's proud. The second way that I think we see from this text that Nebuchadnezzar has a pride problem is how many times it says King Nebuchadnezzar set it up. Look with me, if you would, at your Bibles. Um, you see halfway through verse 1, and he set it up on the plain of Dura. If you look at the end of verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. If you look at the end of verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. If you look at the end of verse 5, the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, the exact same phrase is used to speak about God setting up a king. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So the exact same phrase set up in chapter 2, which is talking about God establishing a kingdom. Now in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is using it to say he's setting it up. So he's got a pride problem. He's into self-glorification. He's into self-exaltation. Nebuchadnezzar is a haughty man. And as one person said, a man who exalts himself is both a fool and an idiot. And I find that to be the case. He's haughty. Pride is his necklace. Well, let's think about how God humbles him. 
we can look in uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men. So those men were, sol were mighty soldiers from his army that died because of the intensity of the heat. That's what those men is referring back to. The fire killed those men who had took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Contrast these mighty soldiers with what earlier chapters of Daniel call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as youths. Very young, young men. So God is able to deliver his servants from the fire, but Nebuchadnezzar is not powerful enough to deliver his. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. God shows mercy on some, but it doesn't obligate him to show mercy on all. These mighty strong men perish in the fire, but these youths that God delivers are safe. Second way that I think Nebuchadnezzar is humbled is he's forced to answer his own question. I don't know about you, but in your life, if you're ever forced to answer your own question, it's a humbling experience. Chapter 3, verse 15. The end of chapter 3, verse 15. And who is the God that will deliver out of my hands? Really, the whole book of Daniel is geared to answer that question for us. Who is the God that can deliver out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands? Then jump down to 29. Nebuchadnezzar answers his own question. Um, the end of 29. For there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. So Nebuchadnezzar is, is haughty, but God brings him low. And so as strangers and exiles in your life, you should take comfort that God humbles the proud. Think about the original hearers of this letter. They were in exile. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? He burnt down the most significant, most important landmark in their life, the temple. The temple was that place that their religious, socioeconomic, everything was about the temple for them. And Nebuchadnezzar just burnt it to the ground and brought them in exile. How comforting do you think it was to them that God humbles the proud? How comforting of a thing was it to them that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the ultimate judge of the universe, but there's a most high God, a God who's above all the other gods. And I want to say for you, it should be a profound encouragement to you in your life that no matter who the president, no matter who the king, no matter who the prince, God humbles the proud. We sang about this this morning uh, in This Is My Father's World. Um, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne ne'er forget. Let me not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong. Doesn't the wrong often seem so strong in this world? It seems like the wrong and the wicked are just taking this world in a total wrong direction. Although the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Christian, this morning, have you forgotten who rules the world? Have you forgotten that God sits on the throne of the universe and he is the sovereign ruler of all things and that the dust mites that might be floating through the air are floating there by his divine command and providence? He's sovereign over the dust mites but he's also sovereign over the stars that are gigantic in size and incompatible. We can't even comprehend the vastness of the galaxy. 
God rules over the big things. He rules over the small things. He really rules the world. So this is a great comfort for us. Another thing I want us to think about together is how different this proud Nebuchadnezzar is than King Jesus. How different is Nebuchadnezzar than King Jesus? If you read the Bible and you go through parts of the Bible like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, what you'll find is that king after king after king is unfaithful to God and that fails miserably and doesn't keep up their end of the bargain. What is the point of many of those passages? It's this. It should make your heart long for an immaculate ruler. It should make your heart and my heart long for a king that would come and the scepter of his kingdom would be uprightness. That a king that would hate wickedness and love righteousness. And that's what we have in King Jesus. Let me just compare some ways that King Jesus um, is infinitely different than King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar broke God's law by setting up an idol. The Old Testament said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down before them or serve them. But Jesus was the righteous one that was a king that came into this world and never sinned, always obeyed. He was the king of righteousness. The Bible says he's the Lord, our righteousness. Nebuchadnezzar is identified with pride and folly. And Jesus is identified with perfect and complete obedience at every point. What a king we have in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar, his servants addressed him and said, O king, live forever. But the problem is by chapter 5 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's dead and gone. Jesus, on the other hand, he died on the cross, rose again, resurrected, says to John on the island Patmos, Revelation 1, verse 18. He says of himself, The living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. The living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Nebuchadnezzar died and was laid low. Jesus died and rose again. What a king we have in Jesus. In pride, Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself by making this image all of gold that we talked about. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 say, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What a king we have in Jesus. You remember Jesus? He's with his disciples. He realizes all things have been delivered over to him. How does he respond? He gets down on his feet and he washes those nasty disciples' feet. He's a humble king. There's not another king like Jesus. There's never been another king like this king. He's immaculate. He's wonderful. You line up all the kings and all their glory to Christ Jesus. They're nothing. His beauty excels them all. His majesty is higher than the heavens. What a king we have in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar's was kingdom. His kingdom was of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What a king we have in Jesus. This is perhaps the one I delight in the most, and I hope you will too. 
Nebuchadnezzar threatened death to those that did not bow down. Jesus himself tasted death so that his people can bow down and worship him in spirit and in truth. What a king we have in Jesus. As strangers and exiles, we should take comfort that God humbles the proud. But secondly, as strangers and exiles, we should be bold in faith, knowing our God. Look in verse 13 of chapter 3 with me. What's Nebuchadnezzar's response to these men? Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage. So Matthew Henry says, it's amazing how some people, some kings can rule other people, but they can't rule their own spirits. It's amazing how they can rule over all of these people, but their own temper they can't get a grasp on. Nebuchadnezzar flies off the handle. The king in uh, verse 15 gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego an ultimatum. Bow down or burn. Worship or forfeit your life. Fall down or fall in. There's really no middle ground for these men. This is an intense, threatening moment. Can you feel it? It's What are they going to do? If you hadn't heard the story before, it's it, the intensity builds and builds and builds in the story. To add it, to make things worse, beautiful music is being played to soothe them into compliance. Um, and what sort of punishment do they face? Well, death by fire. It's a torture device. It's not only. Uh, you, well, let's look at it together in verse fifteen. The end of 15, it says a burning, fiery furnace. So it's not only a furnace, but a fiery furnace. It's not only a fiery furnace, but it's a burning, fiery furnace. It needs um, two adjectives to describe it. That's how hot it is. Burning, fiery furnace. Like, um, like the rancor pit that Jabba the Hutt had. He pressed the button and the unwilling victim fell down into the rancor pit. But then his little throne moves over a pit where he can look down and see his victims in the pit. It's a horrible, uh, it's a horrible torture device that Nebuchadnezzar had. This is a wicked king. Uh, what can we learn from this? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. You remember this? This is the hall of faith. It's saying, what, what were the greatest people of faith in the Old Testament? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their story is listed here. I'm going to read it to you. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me, to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jethro, of David, and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, so that's Daniel chapter 6, Quench the power of fire. So when the writer of Hebrews is looking back and saying, okay, where are those real people that had real faith in the Old Testament? Daniel and Linesden, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. As one man put it, this is faith in the fire. They had faith in God in the midst of an excruciating circumstance. And I think like them, when we face adversity, 
We should have faith in God, and that faith should make us bold. Some people think to be a Christian is that you'll never have any difficulties. You think that if I'm a Christian, God will deliver me from the fire. God will deliver me from trials. That's not the way it is. God promises you in your trial that he will be with you in the midst of it. He doesn't always promise to deliver us from it. Remember Psalm 23? There's a sheep and there's a shepherd. And the sheep in Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, if you have such a good shepherd, what are you doing in the valley of the shadow of death? Shouldn't he keep you out of that? But what does it go on to say? You are with me. God promises his presence sustaining you in the trial. He doesn't promise that you'll never go through it. Another thing that we can learn from this is that God often calls people to suffer alone, like Daniel in the lion's den. But maybe God's calling you to suffer through something together with another Christian. See in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's three of them. So in suffering in your life, you should be thinking about what are people at this church that are suffering the same things that I can bond together with them and we could go through this thing together. Why do I constantly feel like I just have to bear this weight myself? I'm sure there's people here that would love to walk with you in your trial. There's two things that really sustain these men, and we'll have to do them really quickly. Um, if you jump down to verse 17, their faith rested on two things, two attributes of God. God's omnipotence, meaning that God is almighty, and God's goodness, that God is absolutely good. Verse 17, they respond to the king and say, If this be so, O God, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. There used to be a thing that Christians would talk to one another and they would say, um, God is able. And then what does the other person say back? More than able. So it would be like this way that Christians would remind each other that no matter what you're going through, God is able. God has the He has all the power that there is whether it's the power of magnetic attraction, as one person said, whether it's the power of volcanoes, whether it's the power to sustain galaxies in the sky, God has all power. And no matter what you're suffering and going through, he's able. He's able to help you. He's able to uphold you. And these men said God is able. They had faith that made them bold. Not only did they trust God was able, they also trusted his goodness when they said in verse 18, but if not, so they knew God was able to deliver them, but they didn't know if he would. Do you see that difference there? Uh, God is able, but sometimes in our trials and our difficulties, we're not always sure if he's willing to deliver us the way we want to be delivered. Finally, we're strangers in exile. We should take comfort that God humbles the proud. As strangers in exile, we should be bold in faith knowing our God. 
finally, as strangers and exiles, entrust your soul to Most High God, for he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. This was a miracle. These men were delivered from the fire. And they weren't just delivered. They weren't just rescued. God didn't just squeak by with this miracle. God delivered them to a remarkable extent. God delivered them to a remarkable extent. This is God's pattern in the Bible. Can I show this to you? Jump down to verse 30, uh, 27. It says, The hair of their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of smoke had come upon them. God delivered them to a remarkable extent. Have you ever been to a bonfire and you leave the bonfire? What do you smell like? You smell like smoke. These men, though, weren't beside the fire. They were in the fire, and it was a fire thousands of times greater than the biggest bonfire you'd ever seen. And God made it so when they walked out of the fire, they didn't even smell like smoke. He delivered them to a remarkable extent. I want to remind us that this is what happened at the Red Sea. Not only did God deliver his people through the Red Sea, what does it say in there? They walked through on dry land. So they didn't even need to muck through the mud when God divided the Red Sea. It was such a remarkable deliverance that it was dry land. And if you're a Christian here today, I want you to know that God's delivered you to a remarkable extent. That when God has dealt with your sin and the wrong things that you've done, he hasn't merely done it a little bit. He hasn't done it some. He's done it to a remarkable extent. God has cast, if you're in Christ here this morning, God has cast your sins into the ocean, not like a cork where it's going to go down and float back up to the top of the water, but he's cast it into the water like a lead anchor that's going to drop down to the bottom of the sea. For those in Christ, God delivered them to a remarkable extent. You remember the song, It's Well With My Soul? My sin, oh the thought, oh the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. All of your sin, past, present, and future. Jesus took upon himself on the cross. He bore the wrath and the punishment and the full weight that you deserved on himself. He said, I don't want to just take some of it for my people. I'll take it all for them. I'll take all, their, all the punishment that would have fallen on them through an eternity of hell. I'll take it upon myself. And Jesus delivers to a remarkable extent. But if you don't know Jesus here today, if you haven't trusted him, when you hear about King Jesus you haven't waved your white flag of surrender. You haven't said to him, you can, would you please be the Lord of my life? I'll entrust my soul to you to be my king. You're in a more dangerous situation than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You don't face a temporal fire that might destroy you temp temporally. You're facing an eternal hell of fire that would make one long for Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. But I want you to know that if you 
Repent of your sin. Turn away from the things that God hates. Turn to God. Place your faith and trust in the fact that Christ died for you on that cross and rose again from the dead. You will be saved. Jesus doesn't deliver us just a little. He delivers us to a remarkable extent. So as strangers and exiles, we should take comfort that God humbles the proud. As strangers and exiles, we should be bold in faith knowing our God. And as strangers and exiles in a strange land, we should entrust our souls to God, for he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your miracle of bringing these men through the fire. I pray that we would be reminded that you're the same God that acted back then, that you're still delivering people. And God, I worship and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.